Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wandsworth's new council vetoes a development for lacking affordable homes. Right to Buy takes its first bite out of Sterling Prize winning Goldsmith Street. 70% of pubs could be forced to close as energy costs spiral. And could Jacob Rees-Mogg be the next housing minister? My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Owen Hatherley. Owen is a journalist and author of Red Metropolis. Welcome to the show. Mikhail Rich's Sterling Prize winning housing project in Norwich will soon see its first home sold off under Right to Buy amid growing outrage over government plans to expand the policy. This story was covered in the AJ this week. The first ever council housing scheme to win the RIBA Sterling Prize and um, only the second ever housing project, Goldsmith Street was described as a, quote, modest masterpiece and celebrated for its low energy design and generous community spaces. So far in the year 21 to 22, 159 homes owned by Norwich City Council have been sold under right to buy. Uh, Councillor Gail Harris, Norwich City Council's cabinet member for social housing, said, quote, as a council, we remain committed to building high quality social housing to increase the number of affordable homes in the city. But we face a huge challenge due to the numbers lost through right to buy each year. Uh, the restrictions around the use of money we're able to keep from right to buy sales make our endeavours to make a net gain even more difficult to achieve. Um, councils currently receive only 30% of any sales of properties sold through right to buy, uh, with the remainder going to central government. If this money is not spent within three years, councils have to pay it back. The sale of the first Goldsmith Street home comes amid an outcry over the government's plans to extend the controversial right to buy policy to housing association tenants following a pilot in 2018. Uh, the expansion has been mooted as far back as 2015 when David Cameron included it in his election manifesto. Um, the move has been widely criticised by many in the sector as well as local councils, which argue it will lead to a further reduction in housing stock and put further house, uh, pressure on housing waiting lists. Uh, Lambeth Council recently agreed a motion vowing to campaign against it. Um, Owen, what's this all about? What do you, what's your take on uh, Goldsmith Street's sell-off? It's just a policy that should be abolished. And it should, you know, it was in the last two Labour manifestos that should be abolished. It was abolished in Scotland a few years ago. It was abolished in Wales a few years ago. Even, you know, again, to kind of um, 
credit is too much of a stretch, but you know the last Labour government actually did make it much more difficult to to buy council housing. Um, it made it, you know, it didn't abolish it, um, but it did at least, um, you know, kind of get rid of the very large discounts which were in place, which were brought back under, under Cameron. Um, one of the four nations of the UK has never had it. Two of them have abolished it because it's so damaging, and England is just there still having it, despite the fact that it's it's disastrous. And, you know, it's kind of worth being kind of specific about, I suppose, the kind of arguments that were originally made for it. Um, that there is a kind of argument which could be made. Of, you know, you've lived in it all your life, and, you know, you're about to retire, and wouldn't it be nice to just have it and not pay rent on it anymore? And, you know, then you could get in a new door back in the days when, you know, councils would ruthlessly police whether or not you had the right colour door or what have you. Um, there is an argument for that, and some councils actually in the 70s had already kind of let that let that happen. But the idea of having kind of enormous discounts for it and, not, and making it very difficult to reinvest it in council housing and it happening at the same time as new council housing construction basically ceasing, it was designed to destroy social housing as a project, and that's what it did. And, you know, everywhere else in the UK has recognised this. And it is one of those things, there's a few things in English politics in particular where people talk about, oh, it's totally impossible, it's totally impossible. It's like Scotland is just over there. It's not a radical policy. Like, you know, <laughs> and, and, and they've done it, and it's fine. And it's not like there's been some sort of groundswell of angry people going like, we demand the right to buy our council housing along the streets of East Kilbride. It's just not happened. It's been abolished with little fanfare. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's I imagine, made some difference. So... And the Godsworth Street example is so it's such a great one of like, you know, it's not the kind of like, you know, sort of Thatcherite idea of like, you know, you've paid him for ages and now you get to take it out, you know, neither a borrower or a beast or stuff. That that the whole estate has been there for only four years. You know, someone's been paying rent for four years and then they've got it. And then presumably are then gonna either run it as a buy to let or, you know, sell it on the open market or what have you. Like, if it was the kind of um, socially conservative kind of, you know, doing something for the council tenant um, side of it that it was talked about in the 80s does obviously not apply here. This is, you know, this is um, an estate that's existed for four years that's already being, you know, so it's, it shouldn't, shouldn't be happening. Obviously, what's interesting is that um, it, this has created some ripples within the architecture community. And if you look at architecture history, you look at some of the culture, there's always this feeling that extraordinary architecture can be revolutionary and transformational, that architectural intent itself can sort of shape a better world. And then uh, you see something like this, which is a Sterling Prize winning social housing project, uh, which then seems completely powerless uh, in, a, in, in a situation where often things seem to be rigged against uh, what it's trying to achieve. Um, can architecture do anything to tackle the housing crisis when, as long as right to buy exists? <laughs> well, no, I mean, architecture never did. It was housing that did. It was policy that did. And, you know, architecture within that, it had a role. But it was never the thing that spearheaded it, and it never could be and it never will be. Like, that's just not what architecture is. But architects can put themselves at the service of policy and at the service of ideas, Um and, you know, I think that's kind of what the scheme does. And the fact that it's good was really, really, really important because there had been the shift, I think, kind of post-2008, a gradual shift to people going like, 
to breaking with, I think, the policies that have been brought in by Shirley Porter at Westminster and then later brought in by the last Labour government, that, like, you know, the best thing you can do at council housing is get rid of it, turn it into housing association housing, turn it into market housing, in many cases demolish it. Because it's bad, you know, like a lot of the time people could talk about it and, you know, particularly people of a certain age um, born in certain decades being the 40s, 50s and 60s, you know, who sometimes has grown up in it would have the kind of like, ah, you don't understand, it was terrible. You know, it was terrible having, you know, really low rents and totally secure tenancy. It was dreadful. You you just don't understand, you kids, with your avocados. Um, So, you know, there was a lot of that about, although this is kind of before the avocados, and I remember very much in the 2000s arguing for council housing. You would be, particularly with kind of local government types and kind of think tank types, they would look at you like you had two heads. Like, and, and the fact now that it is, you know, seen as the solution to a large degree is, 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 is a positive measure and it's a sign that that, that, that has changed. But... The first kind of run of new council housing that was built after, you know, after the financial crisis was not very good. So something like Goldsmith Street, it looked confident, it looked good, it looked comfortable. And, you know, it was also, you know, it had pretty impeccable green credentials. It was a really good bit of propaganda, basically. Um, You know, it meant that you could kind of go, we should have loads of it and it should look like this. Whereas before one had to make quite a nostalgic argument. We should have it and it should look like Lillington Gardens and Churchill Gardens. So on that level, the fact that it was good architecture was really important for convincing people. So within that, it's not like sort of architecture solved the housing crisis, but architects had a really, really important role in being able to make that argument. So all power to them in that case. Plans for a new 500-apartment tower block in Battersea have been scrapped by Wandsworth Council, who criticised the developer for failing to offer any real affordable homes at all. This story was covered by My London and local news website Wandsworth Times. The move was also celebrated by Wandsworth's new cabinet member for housing, Aidan Dickerden, on Twitter, who announced, quote, Over the last decade, Wandsworth let developers build record numbers of expensive private market homes, with less than 8% being for social rent. House prices went up, rents went up, homelessness went up. Times are changing here in Wandsworth. Wandsworth Council had previously given permission for a 20-storey, 168-home tower block on the site under previous designs which had included 60 affordable homes in the project. However, a recent decision by the developers to increase the building height to 24 storeys and the number of homes to 547 in shared living accommodation led the council to throw out the proposal. Justifying the rejection, Dickerden said, Last night, the committee turned down plans for 547 co-living flats, a buy-to-rent product that avoids the planning rules in terms of minimum sizes, sometimes as this was 11 square metres, and also in terms of private amenity space, such as kitchens and bathrooms. Citing data from consultant Averson Young, Wandsworth pointed out that the homes would cost between £1,430 and £1,733 a month to rent, an affordable sum only to households on incomes above £61,000 a year. The council also complained that a £16.5 million contribution put forward by the developer as an alternative to delivering new social homes was not enough to meet the housing need within the borough. 
So, Owen, earlier this year, Wandsworth voted in a Labour council for the first time in 44 years in the London elections, which saw several Tory strongholds handed over to Labour. Um, What's the significance of this latest move by Wandsworth's new Labour council to block this development on grounds of insufficient affordable housing? Well, although I'm sure it's rooted in the specifics of that particular scheme, it does it does send a message that the that the rot has to stop. We all we've we've all sort of been to that kind of chunk of Riverside Southwest London, in which you know, in an area and in a city with a profound crisis of housing affordability, there's this huge quantity of houses or rather flats that nobody can afford. Many of them sitting empty, most of them, you know, extremely poor quality or very poor, poor public spaces. And, you know, it's in many ways the damage is already done, but at least it kind of lays down a kind of marker of like, we're not just going to let this happen anymore, which is good to see. What's interesting in, in London, in many cities, um, we've, we've gone through a, a multi-decade uh, consensus where social housing, affordable housing is always delivered through this partnership of public and private. The private developer goes, they build something that makes them a lot of money and is part of the giving back to the local community. They give a small slice uh, of something that's useful uh, for the housing need. Um, now, what it appears to be happening here is that Wandsworth New Council is, is, is taking a bit of a, a stronger approach to that. You know, they, they, they really try to get more out of that deal. Um, but can developers be strong-armed into providing more affordable housing, the type of genuinely affordable housing that we really need? Or should councils like Wandsworth, will, will, will they inevitably need to take matters more into their own hands and build themselves? The, the kind of idea of getting developers to do it was something which ultimately is owed to Ken Livingston and Ken Livingston's um, two terms as mayor of London, where I think he really defined what the mayor of London was and what the mayor of London would do for better and for worse. It was considered that, you know, the thing to try to do was this kind of Faustian pact that, um, you know, you would have, I think initially that someone's supposed to be 50% affordable, I think it's later sort of settled to 35. And so you have the situation where, um, you know, the, the, that, those sort of laws got passed and obviously they got kind of um, redefined under David Cameron to mean 80% of affordable, uh, 80% of market rent was the definition of affordable housing, which of course immediately meant that huge quantities of London's working class and then actually middle class people couldn't afford affordable rent to make sure that they did the absolute bare minimum. And the absolute bare minimum would mean, for instance, uh, most frequently studio flats. So you'd get a layer of studio flats and those were the affordable flats. So obviously that meant that no one, you know, who wasn't a single person could actually live in the affordable housing. Um, Certainly families couldn't. And also, a lot of the time, the build quality isn't very good, you know, because of the fact that it's not as tightly regulated as social housing, you're getting housing that is worse than social housing. You know, there's no, and it also tends to result, that kind of thing, it tends to result in just not very much of it being built because of that kind of process of resistance. Um, You know, since that policy was introduced um, in the early 2000s, you know, the, the, the level of social housing um, starts absolutely flatlined until until really the last few years where Sadiq Khan has actually sponsored and funded the construction of quite a lot of new council housing. A lot of that has gone to replace what's been demolished in places like the Elephant, but it's, you know, 
it's there. So I think the tide is turning quite a lot on, on that sort of thing. And the idea that the only way you can get it is to squeeze a bit of social housing out of land lease. People look at schemes like the Elephant and Castle, where that was the plan, where in the end, you know, you got about a dozen social rented units on a site that used to have thousands and they've kind of gone, well, this isn't, this isn't working out, is it? Um, so, but, but because of the way planning law works and the way development works and the way that, um, you know, particularly the way the process of calling in works, often you do have to kind of, and particularly new council that's coming in, that's dealing with everything that was already on the desk. You know, you are having to kind of deal with that, have to, having to do that process, having to do that kind of like, well, we don't think it's good enough because of X and Y. But in a lot of cases, you know, the developer shouldn't be doing it at all. Well, it's really interesting hearing you describe the origins of this because it sounds like uh, this sort of public-private approach to housing delivery is almost like a sort of dreamt up in this utopian moment where the computers and internet would make uh, financial crashes a thing of history. Um, but hey, right now, we're potentially looking at another recession uh, coming quite soon. Uh, do you think, uh, are we witnessing like a real turning point? We could see lots of councils, also uh, conservative councils in London and others, taking a similar approach to what Wandsworth is doing. Or is this just a sort of a canny opportunistic move to, um, to say something about a project somebody thinks might not ever get built anyway? I mean, there's only, what, two, three Conservative councils left in London anyway, but um, I, I, I think for various reasons for which probably I'm in a very, very small way responsible, people now associate council housing a great deal with the left, but, you know, a ton of it was built by Tory governments in the 30s and 50s, um, far more than was built by the Labour government of 97 to 2010. One of the things that that's a response to is the fact that the borrowing cap was um, lifted by Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. So that meant that the kind of, um, you know, that, that was introduced in the 80s under Thatcher and it made it very, very difficult for councils to borrow to build, even in situations, you know, such as the sort of post-2008 period where interest rates were next to nothing. And so obviously since then, quite a lot of places have built. And whether or not, I mean, you know, we talk about a kind of crash and obviously there is a crash coming but there's also that situation of cheap borrowing is also very much over so um you know i've seen a lot of kind of like is this the moment where things change and where the tide turns since 2008 and <laughs> it's never really worked out so um i'm not i'm not particularly optimistic but there is definitely there is definitely recognition at the level of rhetoric and public opinion that this can't go on, which is something. And obviously, we've just been focusing on Wandsworth. Uh, Wandsworth was one of the biggest defeats of the Conservatives in the London elections. But obviously, uh, Westminster and Barnet also uh, turned red. Um, what uh, are you seeing any any other similar interesting developments in terms of housing in these areas, uh, or what do you expect to see? Uh, now that they um, uh, have a bit more uh, power and position to take on the housing crisis? Barnet had a lot of, you know, was, well, Barnet was up to a lot of dodgy things. Um, and I expect that's a lot of why they lost, why they lost that borough is that they were outsourcing practically everything and just kind of, you know, slimming things down to this absolutely kind of rudimentary level of council services. Um, and again, turns out that's not popular. 
Um, but on housing a kind of borough like that, there's a lot of space, but it's often in kind of front gardens and grass verges and so on. And I don't really know what a Labour council would do with a lot of that. Not that it doesn't have council housing, there's plenty of it, but it's a complicated issue. Whereas Westminster, obviously, are in the belly of the beast, and I think a lot of people, particularly kind of non-Londoners, or people that you know, don't don't really realise how much council housing there is in Westminster, and how much Westminster has actually always been marginal. Unlike Kensington and Chelsea, you know, it's always been on a knife edge, and um, it doesn't have a history of being Labour that Wandsworth does, but it's you know, it it it, it, it's, it has large swathes of it that are very working class and that are mainly made up of estates. In many ways, actually, that area is a great example of what council estates are for in a city like London, because of the fact that there's absolutely no way those people would be able to live in Pimlico or off the, off the Edgware Road or, 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 or what have you, or Victoria, were it not for the fact that they were in, you know, the, 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 the protected enclave that is council housing. Um, so it's already got loads of really good social housing. Um, some of the best, in fact, you know, things like um, the Lington Gardens and um, Churchill Gardens, you know, really, really iconic um, social housing. It also doesn't really have anything in the way of gap sites or brownfield or anything like that where you would build anything new. But at the very least, I think it's a place which could, you know, do a lot better with, with, with what it's got, could renovate it and look after it a lot better than they have. And, and just speak more about it, you know, isn't it great that we've got all of this stuff? Up to three quarters of pubs and breweries in the UK face closure as energy and living costs put an industry still recovering from the pandemic in a dire financial crisis. Uh, this story has been picked up across the national media, including by the BBC, Independent Guardian and LBC. Uh, the bosses of six of the largest brewing and pub companies, owning nearly half of the UK's 47,000 pubs, have penned an open letter to the government urging them to take action now to avoid, quote, real and serious irreversible damage to the sector, which employs 940,000 people. Uh, businesses, unlike private households, do not benefit from a regulated energy price cap. Uh, not, not that many of us are apparently benefiting from that cap either. Um, but that means there's no ceiling on what suppliers can charge for gas and electricity to businesses. Uh, the CEO of Green King, Nick McKenzie, said, quote, We could face the prospect of pubs being unable to pay their bills, jobs being lost, and beloved locals across the country forced to close their doors, meaning all the good work done to keep pubs open during the pandemic could be wasted. Mackenzie added that one Green King tenant has seen their energy bill jump £33,000 for the year, as others report they're struggling to find suppliers willing to power their venues. Uh, William Les Jones, managing director of JW Lease Pub Group, said, quote, We have publicans who are experiencing 300% plus increases in energy costs, and some energy companies are refusing to even quote for supply. In some instances, tenants are giving us notice since their businesses do not stack up with these energy costs. Um, these are not just pubs, but people's homes and the hearts of communities they sit in. Um, now, Owen, uh, pubs are not the only sector struggling with spiralling energy costs. All businesses, cafes, restaurants, shops, salons, many of them SMEs, uh, they're all exempt uh, from this energy uh, price cap. Uh, the Federation of Small Business uh, has published data indicating a majority of firms, 53%, 
are expected to stagnate, shrink or fold in the year to come. See, we're Open City. Uh, last year, we published a book all about celebrating the London pub. So we're particularly motivated uh, by this story. Uh, but we're also releasing a new book, London Feeds Itself, which is all about London's small scale eateries, the, the hidden delights and gems of our food culture. Um, Owen, so why is this news such a big blow potentially to London in a sort of social, cultural and architectural sense? Um, and, and how could we see the, uh, the fabric of the places we love changing over the next 12 months as a result? I, you know, I'm drawn to nostalgia and, and I worry that I'm going to end up really nostalgic for like the first six months of 2020, which were terrible. They were terrible. They were absolutely terrible. But there was a thing, you know, because of the response that, that, that had had to happen to to the pandemic, where it was basically acknowledged that <laughs> it's basically acknowledged that capitalism doesn't really work in a crisis and you have to suspend large parts of it. Which is what happened. It's what happened for furlough. It's what happened with those, with those grants. It's what happened with um, the fact that rough sleepers were rehoused. You know, a whole load of things which anyone living in London or any big British city really had had, had kind of in their face or had to live with for, for years was, was suddenly kind of suspended and stopped. And I think in many ways the kind of from like autumn 2020 onwards, there's been a really concerted effort to put the genie back in the bottle and convince people that that could never happen, did never happen, and we can learn absolutely nothing from it. And you can see that the kind of refusal to help in this situation and refusal to help in any way, really, you know, I mean, you know, people like that kind of, you know, notorious... Um, Red in tooth and claw radical Emmanuel Macron have like been, you know, nationalizing energy companies to stop this from happening in France. You know, it is happening worse here than in any comparable country because of how privatized that sector is. And not only that, we're then basically going that, you know, just accepting, it seems the government are accepting that this is going to just destroy people's lives and livelihoods on a gigantic scale. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, and I kind of do think, really, that they probably will be forced at some point in the autumn to to have some sort of package of support, because without it, this place is going to be unrecognisable in, in a year's time. Yeah, and I think it's, what's very interesting about the moment right now is you've suddenly got this word, this cost of living crisis, or even acronym to COL, sort of being like headlined and, and put around on all the talk shows and so on. But yeah, for a lot of people, a lot of people have been facing a cost of living crisis for decades. Like this isn't just a new new thing, right? So you know, wages, rent, housing costs, they've all been going up for years. And it's left those on the lowest income struggling well beyond these, uh, well before uh, these fuel price escalations uh, came into place. Um, is this... Uh, is this like a very much a kind of crisis, which is a, it's become a crisis because it's impacting the kind of middle classes are suddenly fe feeling the bite in a way that they've managed to scrape through, you know, suddenly their their favorite noodle bars shut and they're like, you know, what's going on or risking being shut. Um, and is it is this something that is very unique to London in the fact that we have so little resilience in a big sector of society? Yeah, I mean, that, that question of, of lack of resilience is really, really striking. Um, and you could see that a lot over the summer, 
you know, one thing showed up a load of others, you know, it was like, oh, we've got loads of problems of energy. It's, it turns out we've not built any power stations. You know, it looks like we've got loads of problems with uh, with water and they've not built any reservoirs. You know, there's just a load of really, really basic forms of investment that have just not happened. And I think that, you know, that kind of sense that just, you know, one sort of change in the whole kind of, you know, dominoes all kind of fall. It's very, very strong right now. And I don't think it's a particularly middle-class thing. You know, it will affect noodle bars. It will affect kebab shops. It will affect pubs. It will affect, you know, small white van man type businesses. It will affect absolutely everyone. Which I think is one reason why people kind of, you know, why the poll tax is being brought up quite a lot as a comparison. Because that was a similar thing insofar as it affected everyone. And it's what did them in in the end, because, you know, they had quite a long history of like bashing particular groups, you know, people of colour in the inner cities, mining communities, whatever, you know, they had targeted their, their, their enemies quite specifically. And then with the poll tax, they picked a fight with everybody in a situation that affected everybody. And I think the ramifications of this energy crisis will similarly affect everybody and it will you know, it will probably have similar effects to the poll tax, which is that it will lead to mass civil disobedience, a load of riots, and then John Major will return and save us. As the Conservative leadership race enters its final phase, with the winner due to be announced next week, rumours have surfaced that Jacob Rees-Mogg could be put in charge of housing and levelling up if Liz Truss wins her prime ministerial bid. As Truss's victory over Rishi Sunak looks ever more inevitable, the Times published an article last week musing on who is in the running for a cabinet post. The hint that Etonian banker Jacob Rees-Mogg could become the new housing secretary ignited debate on Twitter ahead of the announcement this coming Monday of the new Conservative Prime Minister. The suggestion that Rees-Mogg could be appointed Secretary of State for the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities led some Twitter pundits to dredge up past comments made by the MP, including his claim that Grenfell Tower victims lacked common sense. Liz Truss herself has some bold statements with regard to her approach to housing as she vowed to put an end to, quote, Whitehall-inspired Stalinist housing targets, a story we covered on this show. The new Conservative Party leader will be announced on Monday, 5th of September, when Parliament returns from its summer recess. Um, Owen, this is all just speculation at this stage, but what might a Truss victory look like for housing in the UK and also London more specifically? Let's <laughs> come. I, you know, we can't we can't honestly have a serious conversation about it. I, I mean, one thing. I mean, the Conservative Party certainly has had a lot of internal division around planning reform and housing policy. So we covered a lot on the show uh, the the big bold housing reforms, which were supposed to sort of effectively bring in a zoning strategy, and then the Amersham and uh, as the Amersham by election defeat, and then, then you've got this fact that. Jacob Rees-Mogg, he does seem to be very popular in some sectors of society and also within the Conservative Party. So potentially, you know, could this be somebody who then translates that popularity into quite an impactful stint as as uh, being in charge of the housing brief? Could you actually... No. No. <laughs> no. Um, his popularity is, um, I think, very overstated because of the fact that he lacks... You know, there is a certain amount of kind of like what a ledge kind of popularity, that kind of Jeremy Clarkson kind of popularity that Boris had. There is an interesting thing to say about about Rees-Mogg with respect to what you outline about their divides on, on things like planning. Um, 
there is that contradiction which always is at the heart of Tory housing policy of them being both the party of developers and the party of the shires. Urban developers, you know, most of the time in the shires. Um, where developers would most like to build, because it would be a license to print money, where they'd love to build is Oxfordshire. They'd love to build around, you know, all of those places that are now quite marginal, um, you know, like kind of Aylesbury and High Wycombe and Bournemouth and, you know, bits of Oxfordshire and bits of the kind of, you know, the suburbs and exurbs around Bristol, all places where they're in quite a lot of trouble politically, um, partly because of the fact that, you know, that those places do get threatened with quite a lot of development, um, which is not popular with the sort of people that usually vote Tory. So you do have that contradiction. And Rees Mogg encapsulates that contradiction because on the one hand, he does this kind of bizarre Victorian cosplay Someone once pointed out on Twitter that um, Jacob Rees-Mogg is the same age as Marilyn Manson. And I, 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 like, I like to think that actually his act is a very similar act to Marilyn Manson's. You know, he is a kind of like Tory Edward Scissorhands type character. You know, it, it, it is all an elaborate joke. Um, and in some ways, you know, he, he probably takes that joke quite seriously. You know, he, he you know, is a practicing sort of ultramontane Catholic, you know, he is like, you know, he does really wear those tailored suits. He does speak in that voice, but he's also a hedge fund manager. And in that capacity, you know, he was basically discouraging, according to James Meek in the London Review of Books, was discouraging investors from investing in Britain during Brexit. You know, basically like, this is going to be a disaster, don't put your money in it. So there is that kind of, um, you know, so he encapsulates that thing where publicly you are kind of like, you know, yes, we're backing Britain. We're on our little ships. You know, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be wonderful. And he's, as a politician, been absolutely bitterly resistant to even the slightest acknowledgement that not everything is going fantastically well with the pointlessly hard Brexit that he and his party chose. Um, and at the same time, as a financier, is totally, totally aware of this. Absolutely 100% aware of this. And so I imagine he is absolutely aware of that contradiction. And I imagine he'll try and manage it in the same way. He will probably, you know, publicly be very kind of, uh, very create streets, very build beautiful. Um, and will probably, you know, behind behind that be, you know, to Persimmon and Barrett Homes, you know, do what you like, lads. Um, and that's, you know, that's, 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 that's what a successful Tory politician make is that ability to be both of those things at once. So he's kind of an ideal figurehead for it, actually. But I don't think he's popular. I don't think that's true. Okay, we're going on to the culture section, uh, which is uh, very, very exciting. Obviously, we've got an open house festival kicking off next week. We're going to have the chief curator, um, Zoe Cave, uh, as the guest on the show. So we'll be talking a lot about open house festival. Uh, there's loads of stuff which is already on uh, the website that people can uh, check out. Uh, there's lots of um, things that you can book for and all kinds of other stuff. One thing that caught our eye uh, on the London team this week when we were preparing the show uh, was that you can actually get tickets to go on Battersea Power Station's iconic chimneys uh, in lift 109. It's a lift that takes you 109 metres above sea level uh, to witness panoramic views up and down the River Thames. Um, obviously, we took our interest for sort of the comedy, bizarre uh, values of this thing. Owen, uh, what do you make of the Wilkinson Air Design Battersea Power Station revamp? Uh, have you had a chance to check it out? And will you be going to check out the view uh, from the top? I won't. Um, 
So there was a great book published about five years ago by a journalist called Peter Watts called Up in Smoke about Battersea Power Station. And it's, it's, it's a really, really fascinating read. And I think so much about kind of London since the 80s can kind of be read from it. And it's very much about all of the various kind of proposals that have been there. There's been, you know, kind of John Outram had like a famous kind of rather sort of bizarre yellow submarine type proposal. Um, you know, it was going to be Chessington World of Adventures, Battersea. It was going to be all sorts of strange and wonderful things. And a lot of them were serious proposals. They were serious costed proposals. Um, and there were some quite kind of, you know, there were really some quite kind of romantic ones. There was, I think, Terry Farrell, I think it was, of all people, who had a proposal of just basically kind of like scooping it out and just leaving it as this, you know, just leaving the walls and leaving it as this kind of ruin. And I think you could have done some kind of like, something like what Chipperfield did in the Noyes Museum in Berlin and did a really kind of fascinating, you know, kind of like something fascinating with the fact that the building was a wreck. And of course, what you have there now, the chimneys aren't those chimneys. You know, they had to like, they had to like recast a load of concrete, fluted concrete chimneys because they were, you know, too unsafe to be at the top of a housing development, which is what there is now. Um, so you've got, the, you know, the whole thing is now actually a kind of a fake. So it was sort of the whole thing was sort of an elaborate kind of piss take of the listing system, really. And now you've got this. And the reason why you've got this is actually brings us right back to the thing we started with, which is Wandsworth Council, which is that they were sceptical for a long time about all of these proposals, about whether or not I think they'd be able to get a lot of kind of rate, rateable kind of value out of it, whether or not you know, there was enough housing there that they that they, they thought the site should have. Um, and developers as well, you know, a lot of them fell through financially because of the fact that if you're kind of marketing it as luxury housing and you want luxury development there, it's not fantastically well connected. There's a couple of railway stations quite nearby, but you have to walk for 10 or 15 minutes through some council estates to get there. So, you know, kind of everything was sacrificed to this really staggeringly banal um, proposal, which is what we've got now. And it was just the absolute, you know, you go through that book and the worst, the single worst idea that has ever been for Battersea Power Station is the one that won, the one that was finally built. It was the most banal, the most uninteresting, the most money-making, the most damaging to the building's fabric. The one that kind of crowded it in most for flats. That's the one that actually happened. Um, and I will not be going there, sir. <laughs> well, there you go. Owen, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on London. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's always fantastic, insightful and inspirational. You're very and welcome. I hope you can join us again sometime soon in the future. I hope so. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to The London show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible 
and equitable city. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.